It's good to be back with you all. I want to thank you all for uh, prayers for Evie and I last week as we traveled. We actually had a wonderful, wonderful time. Uh, certainly good. One of our things as we went away to Myrtle Beach is Evie's mom is up there and uh, she's doing really, really well. And for us, that was a big stress relief and a praise. And so we're grateful. And then Evie, as you know, who is chronically ill, uh, was able to make the trip. I think she did pretty well and is back and doing okay. I also am grateful for Andrew bringing forth the word, continuing in our study of the Gospel of Mark. I heard I missed a great, this could have been my favorite kind of passage, a bacon-focused text. Some of you know what I'm referring to, at least a few of us. For others of you, ask Andrew afterwards, but I'm kind of going, wow. I mean, I'm really liking Andrew's teaching recently because he's becoming very food-centered. We had a salad as an image during discipleship hour. That was the healthy me, and then we had bacon. Now, Andrew, the salad was awesome, but I'm afraid I'm moving towards the bacon. I really like that that direction. That that tells you my eating habits. I I need help on that. You know, I, I want to make you aware, because every part of the worship service is purposeful and intentional. There's nothing we have in here that is not meant to draw us closer to the Lord and bring us and move us towards him. So even when we have prayer of illumination, What is that all about? That prayer of illumination is a time where we acknowledge our dependence upon the Lord, that we can't even open. The Bible is not an ordinary human book. It's not like reading the newspaper. It's not like reading a novel. It's not like reading... I mean, it is God's word to us. It's his address to us. He's speaking to you. And for us to assume we can just automatically get it and trust our interpretation right off the bat, I don't know, strikes me as the height of arrogance, And so I don't want to go into preaching without asking God the Spirit to teach me that, you know, there's a reason the psalmist said, may the words of my mouth and the meditations, kind of what my heart marinates over and ruminates over, may it be pleasing to the Lord. That, in a sense, is what we're doing in the prayer of illumination. We're doing that both myself as the one who's basically saying, I've studied this text all week, let's take a look at it, let's explain what it means, let's share... And then for yourselves, as we hear together, the Spirit is at work. God is at work, walking among us, encountering us in and through his Spirit and the Word to transform us, to make us more like Jesus, to change us. Not just give us good information, but actually encounter us that we become more like Christ. So this is an important time of worship that I invite you Join with me as we ask God to open our hearts and our minds to understand his word. We ask, Father, that you would be our teacher by the Spirit. We acknowledge we can't understand anything without your Spirit, but you've given us the Spirit, the one you call counselor and comforter, paraclete, to be our advocate and to be our helper, the one to show us the beauty of Christ and to teach us. So we pray that we would taste and see that you are good that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened, that we may know the hope to which you've called us, the glorious inheritance of the saints, and we would draw near to you with a sincere heart and full insurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled and our bodies washed with pure water. So we draw near to you in faith, in Jesus' name, amen. The text we're looking at this morning, upon which our teaching is based, we're continuing in the Gospel of Mark this morning, Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 43. Let's turn our hearts and our minds, our attention to the Word of God. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat, 
to the other side. A great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha, kum, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Long passage of scripture, right? wonder what you were thinking as I was reading that. Takes a lot of patience, doesn't it? I have a confession to make. I hate patience. I don't know about you. I even like to read the fruit of the Spirit and go, for the fruit of the Spirit is love. I'm all over that one. Love that one. Joy, yep, with you so far. Peace, I could use more of that. Kindness, whoops, I missed one. I don't like patience. I mean, I hate traffic. I hate waiting in line. I'm the worst at Walmart. If any of you see me at the Walmart, I am so sorry. I apologize to you ahead of time because usually what happens is I'm steaming under my breath going, 22 registers and there's only two open. Drives me crazy. And my favorite technological innovation I mean, I'm not a technological person at all, okay? I, you know, all, where'd, the, where'd they go? All the stuff that's up here on the wall and the cloud, I'm just going, it's either rainy or cloud. I have no idea what any of that means. I'll tell you one piece of technological innovation I love and have embraced, Amazon Prime. You know why I like Amazon Prime? I get my books in two days. 
that is the best $99 I spend every year to get my books in two days. You know, I told you, when I go on vacation, I mean, Evie's got her suitcase, and she's got what she has. I've got some small Walmart bag and a stack of books. So I love Amazon Prime. I think we'd have to admit, wouldn't we? At least can I get one piece of honesty with us, that patience is not something that comes easily for us? There's a reason it's the supernatural fruit of the Spirit. I'm currently, one of the stack of books I'm reading right now is a book by a man by the name of Alan Kreider, and it's called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. In his book, he talks about the improbable growth, the rise, the amazing growth of the early church in the first centuries after Christ. And his thesis is it wasn't so much caused by fancy evangelism programs, wasn't caused so much by slick methodology. They didn't have great programs. He says it was their character and specifically their patience that drew and attracted the pagans, the non-believers, that just something was distinct. By the way, that is what the word holy means. Holy means set apart. There is something that distinguishes you from, from everyone else. In it, he quotes one of the church fathers, a man by the name of Cyprian. And Cyprian was the bishop of the North African city of Carthage in the third century. And listen to what Cyprian wrote. This is from his treatise on the good of patience. He says, patience enables Christians to endure the unavoidable crises of life, loss of wealth, burning fevers, torments of wounds, the death of dear ones, with strength and faith that appear remarkable to their pagan neighbors. Nothing else distinguishes the unjust from the just more than this, that in adversities the just man is proved by patience. He writes, patience is a distinctive sign of the Christian. It enables believers to live in the way of Christ amid the crises of their lives. He writes, patience will temper anger, bridle the tongue, govern the mind, guard peace, Extinguish the fire of dissension. Restrain the power of the wealthy. Teach us to pardon our offenders quickly and to ask pardon of others. I want you to think of this text I just read for you. And a very simple narrative. Mark is using here something that commentators, they call it, a, it's a rhetorical device they call a sandwiching technique. Okay, so Mark's building a sandwich. and a sam Two pieces of bread and something in between, right? Jairus is the two pieces of bread, and the woman is the something in between. And he's doing that because he's wanting to highlight these two characters go together. Don't detach them. Don't separate them. And what this text tells us is two suffering people from completely opposite sides of the spectrum, completely opposite sides of society. And we're going to look at that as we go through the text. You have two people who are extremely patient, courageous, virtuous. You ever wonder when you stumble upon scriptures? And I think one of the biggest challenges for us as Christians is to not pick and choose the scriptures we like and don't like, but to take the whole counsel of God, to take it all, to recognize that it's all Genesis to Revelation, God's word. We can't just take the, oh, for God so loved the world. I like that one. And so, for example, Paul really wrote to the church at Rome, not only this, 
but we rejoice in, and every word is important, in, not for, but in our sufferings. Because suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. I don't know about you, but I struggle with that passage of Scripture. It doesn't say rejoice for, don't rejoice for cancer. Don't rejoice for relational tension. Don't rejoice for death. Don't rejoice for financial, but rejoice in it, there's some fullness. See, joy doesn't mean superficial happiness. It means fullness of life, bearing witness to the reality of Jesus and the reality of his resurrection being a signpost that points. Our lives are meant to be a pointer to the reality of the resurrection. And it happens through suffering. It happens and suffering here is not persecution. This is not the same thing. But it happens through living in a fallen world. How in the world can suffering produce that kind of hope, that kind of character? And if we listen to the early church, that's what caused the growth of the church. These two accounts taken together teach us three things. Three lessons, if you would. Three things about patience that produces hope. And hopefully can cause us to grow in being a signpost. Being a movie trailer, if you would, to the reality of Christ for others. Those three things are the desperation of life, the dynamics of faith, and the design of Jesus. And you got to stay. Please, the first point's hard. Please stay to the whole sermon. Don't leave at the desperation of life. That would make me feel very bad. And you'd be missing a major point, because you've got to move, though. But like I tell you, a lot of times, Charles Spurgeon had that quote, the way up is down. You've got to go down first in order to go up. And if that's the path of salvation, that's also the path of our growth in character and growth as disciples of Jesus. Okay. The desperation of life. Let's look at these characters. And first, we're introduced to Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue. So beginning at verse 21. When Jesus had crossed again to the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. So here's Jesus' traveling ministry. He's traveling around. It says, And then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly. And he laid out before the Lord, before Jesus' situation, his situation, my little daughter, the end of the text, we learn she's 12 years old. Mark wants you, he's giving you details, he wants you to enter with empathy and enter with understanding the desperation of these situations. My 12-year-old daughter is dying. She's at the point of death. Please come, lay your hands on, him, on her that she may be made well and live. And Jesus went with him. Okay, so first we meet Jairus. What do we learn about Jairus? What does the text tell us? We learn he's a man. You might go, okay, that's simple. Why are you telling me that? Well, I'm telling you, it's a very important point. Men have a huge leg up in that ancient world, in that ancient society. Second, we learn he's a ruler of the synagogue, which means he is an important, he is a prominent man in the society. He's at the very least respectable. He's moral. He's prominent. He's honorable. 
more than likely he has some bit of means, some bit of wealth about him. But in the midst of all these things, he is desperate because his little girl, his 12-year-old daughter is sick. She's very sick at the point of death, and she's going to die unless Jesus comes and does something. And Jesus says yes. The text doesn't tell us what Jesus was all. We see even here the patience of Jesus, because all it says is Jesus went with him. Whatever his agenda was, whatever his speaking to her, whatever, he focuses on people. He's loving people. He's moved by Jairus' request, and he goes unhurried, patient, and he goes with it. This wasn't on his schedule. This wasn't wake up, go to the other side, have prayer time, go minute. No, he allows himself to be interrupted. He sees this man's need, and he goes with him. So far, so good for Jairus, right? But Jesus is being Jesus, and he'll be interrupted. In verse 25, we read in the text, there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all she had. And even though she spent all she had, suffered so much, went to many physicians, not only did she not get better, she grew worse. But she'd heard the reports about Jesus. There is something... And she comes up behind him, won't go to him face to face, won't look him in the eye, touches his garment. She says, I don't even need to touch him. If I just touch his garments, if I can just get a piece of the edge of his cloak, I will be made well. Here's desperate person number two, this woman. And the text says, immediately the flow of blood dried up. She felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, and we'll get back to this, In a few minutes, Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him. This is amazing. And even the disciples are amazed at this. He's in a throng of a crowd. Power's gone out from me. He says, who touched my garments? But I want you to just see for a moment and enter in the desperation of life here for a second. You got two desperate people, Jairus and the hemorrhaging woman. They could not have been more different. I mentioned a little bit about Jairus. Now, what about this woman? You need to recognize she is a total outcast. She is completely invisible and anonymous to the world around her. First, she's a woman. Then you have her physical physical condition. This is not just a normal bodily function. This is 12 years of nonstop pain and agony. But as commentators remind us, this is much more than physical. She is, according to Old Testament Levitical law, I won't read it for you, but go back sometime and read Leviticus 15. She is declared unclean. And unclean means rejectable. Not just in physical pain, not somebody who's just in isolation, isolation, but you can go bring a meal to. Someone you can't have anything to do with. Her entire being is discarded. As commentators put it, this woman's impurity is transmissible to others until the problem is cured. Anyone who has contact with her by either lying in her bed, sitting in her chair, or even touching her becomes unclean and is required to bathe and to launder their clothing. Her discharge of blood causes her to be discharged from society because it makes her a major bearer of impurity as a person. See, here she is. Anonymous, 
nameless, invisible, spent all her resources. So, I mean, we're talking she is at the bottom of the barrel, so to speak, physically, emotionally, socially, psychologically, economically, and every other. Can you enter her situation? Can you empathize with her suffering? See, there are so many lessons here. I mean, this isn't a major part of the sermon. I have to be careful to go down too many tangents. But one of them is, do we notice the invisible in our communities? Do we notice the invisible in our neighborhoods? Do we name the nameless? Do we go out of our way to empathize? Do we have understanding to those who are hopeless and helpless? And yet, her suffering's not alone. Because imagine Jairus. Let's get back to him for a second. I mean, the text began with him. He presents his issue to Jesus. Jesus goes with him. I mean, just put yourself in his shoes. So far, he's going, okay, I got hope. This is all right. And now this woman comes along. Whoa, what's going on? I was first in line here. You don't cut in front of me. What's going on? Tim Keller even makes the point, he says, we need to recognize there's a difference between chronic pain and acute pain. You have two types of pain. Both are desperate, but they're very different things. A chronic problem, which is her problem, this woman's problem, is a problem that lasts. It's been going on for a long time. We've been told in the text, 12 years this has been going on. It's a sad thing. It's been going on for years. It's meant to draw forth our understanding, our empathy, our sympathy, our tenderheartedness. But it could certainly wait two more hours because the man with his 12-year-old daughter has an acute, a now, a in-your-face problem. My little girl is about to die. And yet Jesus chooses to stop, to basically say to Jairus, wait in line. Let me deal with this woman. This makes no sense. One of the things Tim Keller says is we need to enter into the irrationality or the supposed irrationality of this text. Reading the narrative, you're meant to go, what is going on here? Shouldn't have he gone and deal with the acute problem and then still minister to the chronic issue? And Tim Keller says you have to notice what's going on here as Jesus enters in incarnates God in the flesh in a fallen world in the desperation of life. That one of the things Jesus is doing, remember he's 100% man, but he's 100% God. And that one of the things Jesus is doing is he's reversing the values of the world. Tim Keller says, Jairus is a male in a society in which men had absolutely all the power. This is a female. Jairus is a synagogue ruler. This woman is ceremonially unclean, hasn't been allowed to even go to worship. This man is almost certainly rich. This woman, we know, is absolutely poor and destitute. She has spent all her money trying to get better and has only gotten worse. Here's the man at the very top of the social food chain. Here's a woman at the very bottom of the social food chain. And yet he turns to a woman with zero status, zero power, and makes a civil and religious leader wait in the moment of his greatest need. And Jesus turns to the woman with zero social, economic, capital, and power and gives her his full attention. Looks her 
in the face, in the eye, and treats her as if there is nothing else in the world but her. And he's doing this, reversing the values, while, as we will see, he is not ignoring Jairus. He is not ignoring Jairus. But he is communicating whenever we are and whenever we face, and let me be honest with you, I think the American church has a real issue. The American church, evangelicals as a whole, has a real issue with suffering. I don't think we deal very well with suffering. I think we're the kings and queens of denial and the kings and queens of deflection. But one of the things, and you have to recognize, C.S. Lewis said this, we are every second of every day either moving towards Jesus or away from Jesus from Jesus, and suffering will always bring you to a crossroad. Suffering will always make you better or worse. Suffering will either make you more human or less human. It will either soften you or harden you as a person. And Jesus here, being fully man and fully God, is bringing both of them to a crossroad. The desperation of life brings you to a cross, which I think is one of the reasons why we'll turn to everything other than embracing our pain and embracing the true desperation of life. No matter what our, I mean, you have two people, Jairus and this woman, from completely different circumstances in life. There's not a rich or poor issue. This is everybody's in the same boat and you're at a crossroads, which leads us to the second point. The desperation of faith, the desperation of life leads you to the dynamics of faith. Both people here show faith. Both people here move towards Jesus. So the object of their faith is right. It's Jesus, which lets us know it's not a weak or strong faith. It's not a perfect or imperfect faith. It's about the object of our faith, which needs to be Jesus. And we learn here a couple of very important lessons about the dynamics of faith. First, in the words of one commentator, we learn that faith opens the door to the power of God. Verse 34, Jesus says to the woman, daughter, and we'll look at that in just a second, but he's restoring her, treating her no longer as an outcast. Daughter is what a familial word. He's restoring her to a daughter of Israel. When he brings her forward, one of the reasons he's bringing forward is to restore her, not just make her physically and then, you know, okay, you're physically fine, now go off and still be isolated. No, I want you in fully. I want you to know you are brought all the way in. And he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Notice here that faith is the conduit. It's the instrument through which the power of God works. It's like taking an electric plug, holding it by itself, it does nothing, but plug it into the wall, the electricity, the source of power, it's got to be plugged in, it becomes the conduit of that power. Faith is the conduit, which leads us to another lesson about faith. We learn for both the woman and Jairus, their faith is an embodied faith, it's an active faith, it's a living faith. Kind of like what James talks about when he says in James chapter 2, for faith without works is dead. He is not, listen up here, I'm saying this very seriously. He's not talking about you're saved by works. That's the furthest thing. What he's talking about is here's the nature of faith. James could have written it. Let me define faith for you. And he's saying here's what faith is. Faith is living 
and a live faith will be seen in its behavior, in its activity, in its deeds, in its action. It's live, it's vital. And as commentators point out, the vitality of faith is seen in both of these in that both Jairus and the woman have a personal encounter with Jesus. They're both meeting Jesus personally. It's like the old illustration that I learned in EE 25 or so years ago. I'm aging and dating myself. James Kennedy's old illustration of he says, what is faith? And he says, take a chair. And he says, to look at a chair, you can have all the correct information about the chair. There's a chair. Huh. Four legs. Sturdy. I got the color. I know all about it. It's good. Have you exercised faith in the chair yet? What do you have to do to exercise faith in the chair? You have to sit down in the chair. You have to trust and surrender. You have to actually have an encounter with the chair where the chair is holding you up. Knowing about the chair is not faith. Knowing about Jesus is not faith. Faith means sitting down in Jesus and letting him hold you. It takes the action of a personal encounter. And as one commentator again said, he said, this personal encounter is vital, however, for anything really significant to happen. For faith to become real faith. He's just pointing out at this point, the woman, he says, look at the woman. She forces her way to Jesus, confident that he will provide a cure for her disease. And he says, she serves for us as a model for people who are shy, ashamed, and afraid to come boldly to Jesus for healing. Again, there's so much we learn here. But one of the things we learn in dealing with suffering, if you look at the reality of suffering and what it creates, and what is the dynamics of faith, the definition, the writer to the Hebrews said faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. If you look at Jairus and this woman, they're not seeing a whole lot. For them, when they're exercising faith, there is an enormous degree of uncertainty for them. The only certainty they have is Jesus. Faith requires us to live in some semblance of uncertainty. But like I said before, we will always be either moving towards or away from Jesus. Always leads us towards a crossroad. Which one of the other lessons this leads us to is as we minister to others, and everyone we minister to is suffering. There are degrees of suffering, but we live in a fallen world, which means every human being is every second of the day living in some semblance of suffering in that we were built for heaven. That's what we were built. We were built and created for another world. So your greatest day, your greatest meal, your greatest experience, the greatest thing you could go for, the absolute, what you consider the peak of the mountain, is but a thumbnail of what you were built, designed, and created for. Because you were built for glory. And while we still live in the not yet, we don't have that glory yet, which means we're suffering at some level. How do we deal with people? Do we give them pat answers? Do we give them cliches? Or do we give them an embodied presence that comes along and encourage? Yes, give them the word of God. There's no other foundation but the word of God. But how do you give them the word of God? Do you apply it to them in a way that's incarnate? 
that you're embodying it, that you're living it so that there's empathy. There's kindness, there's beauty. There's, are you coming alongside? Do you enter into that? And then lastly, the design of Jesus. You see the desperation. You see the dynamics. Finally, what is Jesus up to? Tim Keller again makes the point. He says, when you come to Jesus, you will always both give and get from Jesus far more than you bargained for when you go to him for something. He says, the deal never works out the way you expected it at all. He says, for example, look at Jairus. He came to Jesus, can you please cure my little girl's fever? And what did he get? He got a resurrection. We haven't entered into that. He had to give a whole lot more than he was expected. He had to give patience. He had to give courage. He had to give waiting. He had to give confusion. He had to give uncertainty. He had to give a whole, a whole lot was required. And he got resurrection. And how about this woman? What does the woman really want? She was going to Jesus, and all she simply wanted was, let me touch his garments, be cured, and take off. But what does she get? Jesus, time out, stop the parade, stop the show, come here. She's getting value, care, worth, identity. Why does Jesus do that? What is Jesus' design His design is restoration. His design is not just salvation in a spiritual sense. His design is salvation in all its fullness. Spiritually, physically, emotionally, socially, culturally. Every element and realm of being holistic and full salvation. David Garland, a commentator on, this, on the book of Mark, says, why does Jesus call attention to what she has done? Has she not suffered enough public embarrassment? Could he not let her go in peace with a silent wink? The public embarrassment caused by singling her out signifies his individual care for her. He will not allow her to slip away and remain anonymous. He forces the issue so that when she leaves healed, she will leave knowing that the one who healed her knows her, and cares for her, that she is a person who is worth taking time with and addressing. Verse 34, Jesus says, daughter, go in peace. As I've said many times, that word peace has lying behind it the entire Hebrew concept of shalom, which doesn't simply mean tranquility. It means wholeness. It means wellness. It means flourishing, security, friendship, integration, salvation. Jesus wants her and Jesus wants Jairus to experience a whole salvation. Which brings us back to Jairus. While Jesus is dealing with the woman, while he's going and acting, and stopping, and doing this, you do recognize here that Jairus was with Jesus the whole time. And Jairus just continuing to go 
with Jesus required faith. At any point, that's why I said it, oh, it's suffering will bring a crossroads. At any point in time, and I don't know what I would have done, you know, I think at, at some point I might have gone, hang on, Jesus. I came to you. My little girl's dying, and you're dealing with this. I know this woman's in pain. I feel her pain. I get it. But at any point, he could have said, I'm out. I'm done. I've had it. Sometimes faith is simply keep going. Keep moving towards Jesus. In fact, I think the whole book of Hebrews was written for that, to a people discouraged, a pilgrim people who were despondent and discouraged. The writer to Hebrews just keeps saying, look to Jesus, look to Jesus, look to Jesus. In your discouragement, in your despondency, in your dis- look, don't give up. Jairus continues going. And look, what do we get? Verse 35, while he was still speaking, so here he's speaking to the woman, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Jesus, overhearing what they said, said to the ruler of the synagogue, oh, time, do not fear, only believe. Can you imagine how much it took him to keep going? Do not fear. Only believe. Believe what? And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him in derision, and of course, of course they did. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was, and then taking her by the hand, putting her hand in his, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. Now in verse 30, i got to go back to verse 30 for a second. When the woman touched the cloak, the garments of Jesus, Jesus says, power had gone out from me. The Greek word that is used there is the word dunamis. The same word that's used in Romans 1.16 that says, the gospel is the dunamis of God, the power of God. And here he's saying, dunamis, dynamite, power is going out for me. But look at how it goes out. Look how personal and how loving and how tender. He says, the child is not dead but sleeping. And he takes her by the hand and he puts her hand in his. And commentators, scholars remind us that the phrase that's used there, Talitha kum, is a very tender way. Basically, he's saying, honey, it's time to rise and shine. Get up. Tim Keller says, When Jesus Christ says, if I have you by the hand, even death itself is nothing but a good night's sleep. Even death itself can only make you better. If I have you by the hand, that is what my power is like. Such is my power. And where was Jesus' power truly gone out from him? In the place where he looked utter weakest. How did Jesus defeat death? by succumbing to death itself on the cross. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 4 says, He was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. Do you see Jesus' design 
Do you surrender to it? Yes, life is desperate. There's no denying the pain, the desperation of life. But does it push you? Does it compel you to turn to him? Well, even though he doesn't now end our pain, he doesn't now end our pain, but he puts your hand in his, and he says, everything you suffer, I feel right alongside with you. Everything you suffer, I suffer literally with you. Put your hand in mine, and we will go through it together. Suffering will either make you better or make you worse. It will either make you or break you. Suffering will either harden you and make you bitter, angry, or it will soften you and make you patient and courageous and real and raw and honest and authentic. It will either make you more human or less human. And think about this. We talk about the already and the not yet. Why does Jesus, why does God allow so much of the not yet? Why, why doesn't he just put an end to the pain? Why is he delaying? Why is he not returning? Why does he not put an end to all the pain? Why do we still go through it? Because he's not done yet saving his people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and language. He's not yet calling people and giving them a hope, not just for 80 plus years, but for eternity. He's not yet done calling people. And as we learn from the patient ferment of the early church, how does he do it? He does it through his people bearing witness to his resurrection reality. And how do we do that? We do that through our suffering. He's allowing us to go through suffering, not because he doesn't care for us, but because he's right there actually suffering. Paul had this amazing comment that I don't understand yet, but Paul said in Colossians chapter 1, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in terms of the sufferings of Christ. And obviously he's not talking about the redemptive sufferings of Christ. Jesus is once and for all finished work on the cross, but he's saying something in the overflow and the outgoing of history and of time is still lacking in terms of the sufferings of Christ, which are being done through his body, that have to be done to bear witness, because that is how Jesus says, I am going to draw all men to myself. Does it give you a different vision for patience? Do we surrender to Jesus' design? Let's pray. Father, I do pray that you would make us stronger, more human, more tender in Christ. That we would bear witness to you. What a tough passage in many ways, but what a tender passage to see how you deal with these two people. Through their desperation, through the dynamics of bringing them to yourself, and through giving them your design of salvation. And may we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, the joy that I'm convinced is us, we are your joy, endured the cross, was crucified in weakness, scorned its shame, 
so that through resurrection and ascension he could sit down at the throne of God. Help us to enter into the fullness of salvation. Lord, I'm convinced we need to understand the gospel more. The gospel has to get bigger and bigger to us each and every day. May we understand more and more of the gospel today through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.